Hi, friends. So our text for today invites us into a conversation about incarnation. So uh, this word describes the Christian idea that uh, God became what? Carne, meat, (laughs) flesh, a body. God became embodied. So let's begin to think about this word that signals the understanding that God entered our story in a body as human as yours. So the big question we're going to be exploring today is this. How does reflecting on the incarnation impact your own body? Meaning, when you consider this idea, what happens inside you? What do you feel? How does your nervous system respond? What do you notice? So I invite you to just begin placing some attention on that question. And I'll share with you that for a long time, I didn't notice much of anything. <laughs> I, uh, I understood this idea one way, and it really didn't impact me, like not in any real sense that I could feel or experience. And then a while ago, I understood this idea in a different way. And that has produced ripples of comfort and trust in my relationship with God that I really wasn't experiencing before. And perhaps your interactions with God have always felt safe and trusting. But most of us struggle. Many of us are working through injuries from the past. And we may find that anxiety or defensiveness or frustration or shame interferes in our ability to just relax fully and receive all the goodness that's possible within a trusting relationship. And we may believe that God loves us or that our loved ones love us. And at the same time, our bodies may tell a different story. And neuroscience tells us that our bodies don't lie. They're truth tellers about how safe or unsafe we may be feeling. And for a long time, I didn't feel as safe as I wanted to in my relationship with God. And so perhaps you know some of what that's like. And today, I want to offer some hope where that's concerned. So perhaps we might begin this way. Let's start off by inviting some awareness of what may be happening inside us right now. What story is your body telling you about God? Uh, I'll invite you to just, in whatever way makes sense for you, turn, kind of turn inward, close your eyes if that's helpful. You might place your attention on your breath. And now invite God to come close. And just begin to become aware. What are you feeling as you relate to God and imagine God relating to you? How is your body responding? What story is your body telling you about God? Safe, unsafe, soothing, unsoothing. (laughs) All right, one more slow breath together. Whenever we're ready, we'll come back. And I'm... I want you to hold on to whatever you notice during that practice. Uh, But let's acknowledge we sometimes can feel pressure to relate to God in a certain way. And um, so 
Can you create some safety for your neighbor this morning to share with you honestly a word or a phrase, something that they notice? Does that sound good? We'll just create some invitation for truth-telling. And um, if that sounds good to you, then turn to someone next to you and say, neighbor, what did you notice? And I'll give you a moment. Just share a word or a phrase. Okay. Uh, so if your neighbor was uh, a little vulnerable with you, maybe tell him thank you. Um, and I'm not going to ask what, what you shared, but I do want to know what that was like for you to hear your neighbor share their truth, share what, what honestly is happening inside them. So. Um, can I invite you to just call out what that was like in a word or a phrase? What did it feel like? If your neighbor shared something honest with you, how was that for you? What was that like? Welcoming. What else? Authentic. Trust. Wonderful. Yeah. It can really feel like a privilege to be um, trusted with someone's truth. And we don't often talk about what's really happening inside us when we're relating to God. So thank you for creating that invitation today. And let's start to become curious how this notion of the incarnation, that God became a body like ours, uh, how might that produce greater trust within us and between us? So uh, we're here in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, where we read this. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him all things in heaven and earth were created, things visible and invisible. So scholars believe it took around 30 years for Paul to work out this understanding. And he worked it out with friends, with Peter and Paul uh, um, and John. And they came to this conclusion. Jesus was God, making the invisible visible. And so let's notice that that's peculiar. <laughs> so like bring to mind your, uh, one of your closest friends and we would be just devastated. Just we would be wrecked if we lost them. And we might find ourselves decades later at a dinner party telling people about this friend and their sense of humor and good times we had. But would we get them mixed up in our heads with God? If that seems a little strange... What do we imagine led Paul and Jesus' other friends to that conclusion that Jesus is the exact image of God? Certain words have the power to deepen our understanding of what we're seeing. Language can do that. It helps us recognize patterns that otherwise may remain hidden in plain sight. So uh, here's an example for us to consider. Forty years ago, the English language gained a new word, fractal. Uh, it was given to us by a mathematician, Mandelbrot, and the word draws our attention to the tendency of the universe to be organized in self-similar patterns, following the Fibonacci series. One, one, two, three, five, eight. One, one, two, three, five, eight. And children don't need to know this word fractal to appreciate the beauty of nature, but the word helps us recognize this larger pattern 
echoing throughout the universe, where a smaller part mirrors a larger whole. So whether we zoom in or zoom out, the pattern's the same. One, one, two, three, five, eight. One, one, two, three, five, eight. In the branches of a tree, in the rings of a spider web, the curvature of shells and waves, and the properties of snowflakes and ferns, and in rivers and galaxies, and in your own human lungs and brain. One, one, two, three, five, eight. One, one, two, three, five, eight. It's the time signature of your resting heartbeat. And we don't need a word for what we're seeing to appreciate the wonders of nature, but the word makes visible what otherwise might remain invisible. And he is the image of the invisible God, a fractal of God, mirroring everything true about how God relates to us. So, Vox, a question for us this week might be this. What is the pattern, then, of God made visible in Jesus? Or what might we learn about God from looking at Jesus that perhaps otherwise would have remained invisible? So we'll return to that question in a moment. But let's look now at how our text continues with this. He himself is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. All right, so if earlier Paul was sharing his understanding of who Jesus was, this is Paul telling us how he understands who we are. We're the ecclesia, the church, the ones called out, called out from one pattern and into another pattern. So we might start to wonder, what is the pattern we're being called out from, and what's the pattern we're being called into? And I wonder if we might find a clue in this image that, Paul offers us of the body and the head. So let's notice that the head exerts power over the body. And uh, as Nick shared last week, the human pattern that we see all around is of heads abusing that power, of heads apparently having no concern for the health or wellness of the bodies that they're leading. And that pattern, it contributes to injury and exploitation and scapegoating and bodies being sacrificed. And in the face of that pattern, we can feel powerless. And maybe there's not a whole lot that we can do, but I think we can do something. We can practice being truth tellers. So as we begin to think about what that practice might look like for us as the church, um, here's one way we might think about it. There's a folktale from around the world, and the version that you might remember uh, comes from Denmark. And it goes something like this. Once upon a time, there was an emperor who liked to parade in fancy clothes so people would flatter him. And one day, two thieves arrived uh, to try to swindle the emperor. And they told him they could weave a cloth so exquisite it would be visible only to those who weren't fools. And so the emperor thought, perfect, I'll be able to tell who the wise are from the fools in my own court. So he paid a large sum of money, and he let the tailors uh, start to their work. So they set up looms, and they behaved as though they were weaving. And soon the emperor grew impatient, so he sent a royal official to go check on the progress. And that person saw the empty looms, and he thought... uh, Uh, He was terrified of being called a fool. And so he went back to the emperor and he said, oh, 
the pattern is gorgeous. The colors, you're going to love it. Just wait and see. And then an, another while later, the emperor sent a second official who also saw nothing and afraid of being called a fool, went back to the emperor and said, oh, I was spellbound. It's enchanting. You're going to love it. So soon all the townspeople were eager to see the emperor parade down Main Street in his new clothes. And so the tailors asked him to come in, and they pretended to hold up the suit. And the emperor, seeing nothing, panicked. And he said, am I the fool? How terrible. Like, no one must find out. And so he was helped to undress, and he pretended to put on the clothes, and he turned circles, pretending to admire himself in the mirror, and he said, oh, the fit is remarkable, isn't it? And everyone agreed with him. And the nobleman bent down low and picked up his train, and off they went, and people lined the streets. They poured out onto the sidewalks and the balconies, and everyone said to their neighbor, oh, look at the emperor's fine suit and see his long train. Everyone except for a small child who pointed and said in a loud voice, but he has no clothes on. And then everyone gasped, what did the child say? No clothes, but hasn't he? And soon everyone in the town was shouting what before people were only thinking. The emperor has no clothes. And the emperor, suspecting they were right, continued on proudly anyway, preferring instead to think he alone was wise. Jesus is the head of the body, but a different kind of head for a different kind of body. A body of ones who are called out from one pattern and into another. Out from a pattern of swindling and scapegoating into truth-telling a pattern that makes visible the invisible and creates ripples of safety and trust in our relationship with God and with one another. Which circles us back to our original question, how safe or unsafe does relating to God feel to us? And in what way? I'll tell you, Jesus appears to receive a shocking amount of safety and trust from his relationship with God. And in seasons where we could use more of that, let's be curious how reflecting on the incarnation might crack something open for us. So we'll explore that question even deeper now as we look at how our text wraps up with this. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him God was pleased to reconcile all things to God's own self, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of the cross. And friends, this is the heart of it. So what is God communicating to us through Jesus' death on the cross? Until a few years ago, I was relating to God through an inherited idea of what Paul means here when he speaks of God making peace through the blood of the cross. I had been told by pastors in the 80s and 90s, which dates me, that peace with God requires a sacrifice. This idea was printed on paper tracks that were left on benches and bus stops around college campuses. And it was taught as a spiritual law that sin has to be punished. And according to that notion, God can't simply forgive. 
Someone has to suffer. Forgiveness must be purchased with a death. For the wages of sin is death. In Romans 6, Paul never says that those wages are owed from God or to God, but that's just how the teaching goes. And I never questioned that notion. I related to God through this idea that God can't simply forgive without someone suffering or dying. And my body responded to the inherent unsafeness made visible in that image. But if Jesus is the image of the invisible God, what pattern of God is Jesus making visible to us? To detect a pattern in scripture, we have to look at every story we have. And when I do that, I'll share with you the pattern that emerges for me. Jesus simply forgives. <laughs> in Mark 2, uh, Jesus forgives the paralytic. You'll remember the man was lowered down by his friends on a mat through the roof. And Jesus looks at him and says, son, your sins are forgiven. And the man's legs are healed without anyone else's legs having to be broken. And the teachers of the law that are there that day, they shout, blasphemy, who can forgive sins but God alone? And Jesus says, I can't, I just did. (laughs) And the pattern continues. In Luke 22, when Peter slices off the ear of the soldier who's arresting Jesus, and Jesus says, no more, and he reaches out and touches the man's ear and heals him. Violence is not necessary. No one has to suffer here. I'm sorry, forgive my friend. He's a little passionate. Here, here's your ear back. (laughs) And the pattern continues. In Matthew 21, when Jesus cleanses the temple and he overturns the tables of those who were getting rich off of selling forgiveness through scapegoating and sacrifice, and Jesus says, stop this, and he spills the money on the floor and he sets the animals free because forgiveness doesn't need to be purchased. And notice with me that immediately after that scene, which is pretty intense, we're told that children rush up to Jesus in the temple singing, apparently feeling still perfectly safe in his presence. If Jesus is a fractal of God, what is the pattern he is making visible to us? I think it's this. Jesus came to reveal that God's forgiveness has always been free. You were always already forgiven. And perhaps we are the ones who mistakenly believed that a sacrifice was necessary. And so God came to us in a body like ours to reveal to us that you you were wrong. Sacrifice and death has never been necessary. No one needs to die. But if you believe that one of us should, let it be me. Friends, if this is the pattern of God, non-punishing, non-violent, freely forgiving, how does our body respond then to that pattern? How does that notion impact your own body. You might just take a moment right now even to turn inward again, if it feels right to you.
Perhaps invite God to come close once more. And just in a quiet moment, how do you feel? What truth is your body telling you? As I said earlier, most of us struggle to find safety in our relationships. And so perhaps this week, as you go about your routine, you might reflect on this notion of the incarnation, that Jesus is making the invisible visible. And let's together continue to just notice what impact that may be having on our own bodies, on our felt sense of trust, our ability to relate to God and one another. And let's be curious how God may be relating to us through this fractal story. Loving God who created sequoias and snowflakes and synchronized spiral galaxies with our own resting hearts. Create in us a wonder about the safety you're inviting us into. In the name of God, the invisible, Christ, the embodied pattern, and the spirit who helps us to perceive it. Amen.